What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife. I'm Sarah Maskell, a general surgery resident at Cleveland Clinic, representing one of the hernia subspecialty teams. I'm Ryan Ellis, also a general surgery resident. And we're here with Dr. Michael Rosen, the director of the Center for Abdominal Core Health at the Cleveland Clinic, and his partner, Dr. Clayton Petro. Both are leaders in the field of hernia and have contributed to the field through numerous clinical trials and have authored multiple textbooks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This is a huge passion of mine. Hey guys, this is Mike Rosen. Excited to be here. Our topic today is hernia repairs and smokers. In case anyone out there didn't already know, smoking is bad for your health. There is a myriad of detrimental effects of smoking, including cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, increased cancer risk, and there's no shortage of literature linking preoperative smoking with postoperative morbidity. The reason we're revisiting this topic in hernia surgery specifically is because preoperative optimization has become a buzzword in this field. Smoking is a common reason to postpone elective hernia repair. We want to review the current literature to evaluate if we are disingenuously withholding care, often to underprivileged. NISQIP data for multiple surgical subspecialties has supported this association between smoking and wound morbidity, and RCTs have demonstrated that preoperative smoking cessation at least four weeks before an operation can decrease this risk. Yet approximately 15% of the American population continues to smoke. There's also data to suggest that active smokers are at a higher risk for developing incisional hernias after primary laparotomies. With respect to open ventral hernia repairs, over 380,000 are performed annually in the United States. Dr. Rosen, can you tell us a little bit about the historical perspectives on why smoking is so taboo in elective ventral hernia repair? Sure, Sarah. First of all, I would just start by saying that it is a bit shocking to me that I am here today questioning something that I thought 10 years ago was an absolute no-brainer and honestly was a requirement before surgery. And I think historically in the field of hernia surgery, we haven't had a lot of great data on hernia-specific outcomes. And so a lot of what we've done have used other procedures or potentially large databases that are missing a lot of hernia-specific outcomes and operative details to make decisions. And I think we did that from a good place, that we were trying to make sure we were taking good care of patients. And I was a large advocate for many years as just mandatory. You could not have a hernia repair without quitting smoking. And I think that we all thought we were doing the right thing. And now with newer data, I think we're going to get to talk about today, kind of question that and really getting to the heart of is withholding care for symptomatic hernias the right thing to do and what are we afraid of? And why are we not operating on those patients in our practices? 
To put this into perspective, we wanted to review some of the specific sources that are commonly cited on this topic. In 2012, Sorensen et al. published a meta-analysis and systematic review in Archives of Surgery on smoking and surgical wound healing. They included 140 cohort studies across multiple surgical subspecialties, which included general thoracic, orthopedic, and plastic surgery, and found that active smoking was associated with increased risk in wound necrosis, wound dehiscence, and surgical site infection. Noticeably, they did find a discrepancy between studies that reported crude incidence rates and adjusted odds ratios, which indicated that there was some degree of publication bias. There were also many NISQIP studies that looked at ventral hernias specifically in concluding Kubasiak et al. in 2017 with their NISQIP report of 72,000 ventral hernia repairs. Although their multivariate analysis showed that current and previous smokers had increased rates of respiratory, wound, and all infectious complications, the raw incidence of complication rates is less dramatic. Wound complications were 4.3% in never smokers versus 4.1% in those with any smoking history. Looking specifically at previous smokers, there were wound events in 4.4% in previous smokers versus 6% in active smokers. All infectious complications in this cohort were 1.5% versus 1.5% in never smokers versus those with any smoking history and 1.6% versus 2.3% in former versus active smokers. All of these findings had a statistical significance of P of less than 0.0001, including the 1.5 versus 1.5%. However, I think this highlights the difference between statistical and clinical significance. Dr. Petro, what are some of the drawbacks of using these large data sets like NISQIP and NIS? NISQIP studies are great, but they definitely have limitations. And in addition to some just definition things, so for instance, a smoker in NISQIP is anyone that smoked within a year of their operation. So it doesn't really get into people who have recently quit, which is often a huge push preoperatively, try to get people to quit that month before. The other thing that NISQIP doesn't have, and this is really important for ventral hernia repair patients, is are the op details. And so the size of the hernia, the type of mesh that was used, where it was placed, was a minimally invasive or robotic procedure. Uh, it also sometimes doesn't account for some of those subtleties. And that's really important in our patient population. And the other thing that, that, I, that is really hard about NISQIP data is that database just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you can go from Phenan, F-I-N-A-N, in 2005 to, to Kabaziak in 2017 to Lancy in 2018, I think. And these these NISQIP analyses just get bigger and bigger, 1,500, 72,000, 220,000 patients. And what you start to find is that really small differences in the 1% to 2% range can give you statistical significance. But statistical significance doesn't always correlate with clinical significance. And what occurred to me when I sat down to write our paper was that we had this really this junior database that was just getting started and our, we were getting bigger and bigger and we were finding the same one to 2% differences than NISQIP was. But in some instances, we weren't achieving statistical significance, but the, the outcomes were often the same. We found similar rates of wound morbidity in some cases, almost identical rates of overall morbidity. In the 2017 BORAD paper, we had almost identical rates of overall complications, which gives some validity to the quality of the QC data set. And so how do you reconcile when, okay, we're finding similar data? What I was predicting was like, okay, what about five years from now when we have 
a similar cohort of patients to NISQIP, and that and we achieve statistical significance, but the numbers are the same. The we, the one to two percent differences are still there. What do you do about that? And so, what really matters is maybe not the statistical significance, and but are is the interpretation, the clinical significance. And so, really, you can step back and say, well, the p value doesn't really matter anymore. What really matters is what is the difference in complication rates that matters to the surgeon, that matters to the patients? Because that's really the question. And I think whether it's a, a large database or a small database, if you're finding consistent data, really, you shouldn't, what you need to be arguing about is the conclusion. And I think that's one of the things that I learned going through our data set. So I'll tag one thing on to what uh, Dr. Petro said. I think when I started my career before all these large databases, we did trials and we did retrospective trials and we had hundreds of patients and we were often underpowered to find things, but we would only find things if they were large signals. As I've watched over the last 25 years, I think that these large databases are incredibly powerful, but I think you must be very careful in how you interpret them because when you are comparing 100,000 patients to 100,000 patients, you need to make sure that there's clinical differences that are relevant. And particularly when it comes to hernia repair, I think we must be careful when we talk about denying care for patients that we're picking clinical outcomes that are significant enough to justify that denial and not just with p-values, but with clinical relevance. So I think this is a good time to talk a little bit about the existing randomized controlled data on preoperative smoking cessation. In 2014, Thompson et al. published a Cochrane systematic review of 13 of these randomized controlled trials on preoperative smoking cessation. Seven trials, which represented multiple surgical specialties, evaluated postoperative complications. In subgroup analyses, there was a significant effect of intensive intervention on any complications with a risk reduction of 0.42, and on wound complications with a risk reduction of 0.31. Brief interventions did not show a significant impact on complications. One of the high-impact RCTs on this topic was published in 2002 in Lancet by Muller et al. This trial involved an intensive six- to eight-week smoking cessation program prior to hip and knee arthroplasty. 56 daily smokers were randomized to the intervention group, and there were 52 daily smokers who received standard care, which was little or no advice on smoking cessation. The majority of the intervention group was actually able to successfully stop smoking or reduce their tobacco consumption, but only four of the patients in the control arm were able to stop. The most significant effect that was seen in this trial was in wound morbidity, which was about 5% in the cessation group versus 31% in the control group, and the number needed to treat was four. This was a huge difference. However, these were all orthopedic patients. There have been other randomized control trials, but patient populations were often still mixed and represented operative risks that were different from modern techniques of retromuscular ventral hernia repairs. This leads into the paper we want to focus on today, which is Dr. Petro's ACHQC analysis, which was published in Surgery in 2019. This paper is entitled, Does Active Smoking Really Matter Before Ventral Hernia Repair? An AHSQC Analysis, which is the previous name for ACHQC. The authors included patients undergoing elective open ventral hernia repair and clean wounds with 30-day follow-up, and they were extracted from the Abdominal Core Health Quality Collaborative. Current smokers within 30 days were one-to-one -one propensity score matched to patients who had never smoked based on demographics, comorbidities, and operative characteristics. 
The mean hernia width was 7.7 centimeters in both groups, and myofascial release was performed in 60% of each group. The key findings of the analysis were higher rates of surgical site occurrences in active smokers at 12% versus 7.4%. This was mainly driven by cellulitis and seromas. This difference remained on multivariate logistic regression, which included the covariates of BMI and COPD with an odds ratio of 0.95. However, rates of surgical site infection, surgical site occurrences requiring a procedural intervention, reoperation, and all 30-day morbidity were not significantly increased in active smokers. There were no instances of mesh excision. Dr. Petro, with multiple randomized control trials in this quip study showing that there should be a wound effects of smoking, what made you interested in revisiting? So that's a great question. I think when I inherited a project that it was going to involve looking at the ACHQC, looking at smoking cessation, or smoking and its association with wound morbidity, my assumption was that I was going to be sitting down and writing the next paper that said smoking is associated with increased wound morbidity and surgical site infections and surgical site occurrences. And I thought I was going to be adding the next paper to that pile of literature that, that already exists. And so what ha actually happened was, is when I sat down to do it and I looked at the ACHQC data, what I found was that the differences in moon morbidity were not that dramatic. And I think a part of me became anxious because it's always concerning when what you find doesn't necessarily match what the rest of the literature showed. But then I started to look a little more closely at the rest of the literature. So I know we already briefly talked about some of the NISQIP data. And what the NISQIP data found was actually quite similar. And I was finding these 1% to 2% differences in wound morbidity or in all complications. And when you look really closely at the NISQIP data, they were also finding these small 1% to 2% differences in wound morbidity and complications. So it wasn't necessarily that our data was different. What, what I was really challenging were the conclusions. And Dr. Rosen alluded to this previously. The there's a clinically significant difference based on one, a 1% one to 2% difference just because the NISQIP data set has hundreds of thousands of patients with very small p-values uh, and a significant odds ratio. That may not be accurate. And so then I started to look at the randomized controlled trial data and find that, well, sure, there are some randomized controlled trial trials that show differences in the post-op complication rates, but are those really are patients. And so some of the best data to show that there is a benefit to smoking cessation is for, from Denmark with orthopedic patients. The Moeller et al. paper for it was regarding orthopedic patients in Denmark who stayed in the hospital for 11 to 13 days. And so that is a lot different than one of our ventral hernia repair patients who stays in the hospital for somewhere in the four to six day range. And then again, our analysis that goes for is for open ventral hernia repair patients, clean cases with retromuscular mesh. And so that's a very unique cohort. And so I think in terms of why did I want to look at these patients, I thought that our patients were a very unique population that the randomized controlled trials really didn't address. Maybe I'm going to tag on one thing to that too, and I, just to back up for just a second and set the stage as we go forward. I think Sarah mentioned this in the beginning, but I, I want to stress this. We all know that smoking is not good for you, and none of us are advocating smoking. I want to just focus the conversation on should we be using the data that we're looking at today in all of these studies to deny symptomatic patients elective operations 
and and that's one of the things that we found we could really dig deep into the wound outcomes and it's still an unanswered question which is and i think this is an individual surgeon and perhaps even a shared decision making question is a superficial surgical site infection that gets put on antibiotics and they get better in two or three days justified in saying no to patients that have a symptomatic hernia? Or does it have to be a mesh infection with mesh explantation? I think as a surgical community, particularly in the world of hernia surgery, we all need to get on the same page and say, okay, before we look at these large databases and in the randomized controlled trials, we use different definitions and different outcomes to say smoking is bad. Let's start with what outcome do we care enough about to say we will not operate on you and then look for that outcome. And if we don't see it, then we acknowledge that smoking isn't good for you, but it might not be bad enough to prevent us from trying to fix your hernia. So how do you counsel your patients today based on the same data? That you- so I- I'll take that. So for me, this is a complete turnaround. Uh, before, I, you know, half of my clinic was talking about smoking and the other half was talking about obesity. Um, so for the smoking perspective, which we're going to focus on today, uh, I, I've completely changed. And I, I tell the patient basically this. I say, listen, um, you know, we all know that smoking is bad for you. And if you can quit, I encourage you to quit. You can take nicotine supplements. You can take patches. You can take pills whatever makes you comfortable. And, and I do think that will help you get a better outcome for your hernia operation. But our data doesn't suggest the devastating complications like mesh infections are any higher, but they still can occur. And if you cannot quit, then we will proceed on with surgery. You will be at a slightly higher risk for complications and you have to accept that. But for me, and again, I should just say maybe a couple little caveats to that. The operation that we're doing does not involve a skin flap. If I did an anterior component separation, I would not be having this conversation. It would be a, you must quit smoking. But we're doing retromuscular surgery without skin flaps. If I was doing a really complicated hernia, multiple reoperative case, then I, I might be a little bit more strict. But for the kind of routine hernia repairs out there, for me, it is certainly encouraged, but it's I no longer mandated. I no longer check for codeine and I no longer cancel cases people are uh, actively smoking. Yeah, I would say my attitude is pretty pretty similar. People that it's certainly going to be in your best interest long-term for your health if you stop smoking, and now's a really good time to do it, particularly if you want to have a little bit of benefit in terms of your post-office outcomes. But the disadvantages of those outcomes are not going to be enough for me to cancel your case. So it sounds like you've become much more lenient in offering surgery to smokers. Are there scenarios where you still require smoking cessation prior to surgery? I, there's a couple things that, that I'll just add to that. One is I'm pretty sensitive to the nuance of the people that we, were in, that we studied. I think that certainly nowadays the, our practice is even more complex than it was five years ago when we looked at this. So the redo tar, those types of patients or the peristomal, the contaminated cases, those weren't included in this analysis. So for some of the more complex cases, I still might be a little more harsh on the smoking cessation. But I think that, again, I can't underscore this enough. I think we really can't treat smoking cessation as black and white as it's often considered because there are consequences to withholding that care. And I think we really have to consider what's happening to these patients or we're holding this bar that's often unrealistic for many patients. Many patients are not going to be able to stop smoking. And and a lot of those patients are incredibly symptomatic. A lot of them end up in the emergency room 
in the middle of the night and don't get the same type of repair that they would get electively. And I think we have to be really cognizant that those are the types of patients who don't have great access to care to begin with. I think it's important to recognize that the same patients who have trouble smoking are the same patients who don't have the same, don't have great access to healthcare to, to begin with. So I think that there are probably many surgeons out there right now that are listening to this thinking, how are they undoing all of this great work? And we finally got buy-in for all of these surgeons to accept that smoking is a problem and put the effort in. And what is going to happen to the field of abdominal wall reconstruction moving forward when we unleash the ability to operate on smokers? And I just want to address those concerns because I think it ties into all of this and how we deal with our patients. Because at the end of this, there's a patient. And I think that there's a lot of levels to that. I think number one, although we likely use the term complex abdominal wall reconstruction, and certainly people like to market themselves as abdominal wall reconstruction surgeons, I think that there is a spectrum out there of skill. And I think that an experience in these operations, and I think where you are on that learning curve may or may not affect your ability to get similar outcomes in operating on active smokers. And that's important to realize. But what I would encourage people to do is to say, listen, instead of just telling these people no and leave, realize that there are other centers out there that, that are willing to take on these challenges and look at their data and no longer deny these patients care. And, and the final piece, and I think that you just cannot stress enough, that this is a, a, a 20 years of work in looking at your data. And as, as Dr. Petro mentioned, we did not anticipate that active smoking was not going to be a bigger deal than what we found. We thought that we were going to see dramatic wound changes. And this is what continuous quality improvement is, is it's being willing to, or being able to look at your data, look at your outcomes, digest the information, and then be willing to share that with your patients openly and acknowledge when, wow, it, the smoking, although I thought it was terrible, I've looked at this data, I've interpreted this data, and I think maybe I oversimplified the conclusions of all of this data. And, and I think that over my career, there's no question that people have come in with emergency operations in the middle of the night when I've told them no, when I probably could have fixed them, got them on their way, and, and get them back to their job and their life. And I think that we have to be able to acknowledge that. I know we've talked about a lot of really great research today, and so I want to address this next question to, to each of you individually, but where do, what are the lingering questions still left in this puzzle? Like, What is the next step for each of you? Well, I think it's funny. When we wrote up our experience five or six years ago, we didn't know enough about randomized controlled trials to understand the way to probably study this appropriately. I think we're probably getting to a place where we're almost ready to do would be a non-inferiority trial where we would have patients do smoking cessation versus not and compare the group. So I would say a couple of things. I think, first of all, this gets to the heart of everybody out there, which is, okay, how do I digest this information and how do I decide if listening to this podcast, I should start operating on smokers and what's going to happen if I do. That's certainly, when we put this paper out, that that is what was on my mind is, wow, like we are really saying some things here that are completely against everything I have said from the podium for the last 10 years. So what do I do? It's, we have a pretty strict policy here that if we put it in writing, we're going to follow it. And so we, as a group, have, I don't think it happened overnight, but I think we have slowly all over time 
liberalized our requirements. And we are currently in the process of looking at, since we put this paper out, what happened? We started operating on smokers. What happened to them? And I think that just a little spoiler alert, some stuff happens. It might not be as, as, as perfect as we thought, and it might not be as bad as all these other papers. It's probably somewhere right about in the middle. And then you, so to me, that's the story of if you are not collecting your data, if you are not prospectively looking at your outcomes, then you are stuck in knowing, do I need to change? And if I change, what are my outcomes going to be? So I think the first thing is you're going to start operating on smokers. You need to track your outcomes in some way to figure out everybody out there who listens who says, all right, maybe I've been a little too harsh and for the more straightforward ones. You need to be tracking your outcomes in some way, shape, or form to make sure that are things going to change. And maybe if things get worse in your practice, what we wrote is not relevant for you and you need to go back to what you did before. But if you get similar outcomes to us, then perhaps you can liberalize and have that discussion with your patients and be honest about, hey, look, it's a couple percentage points different. That's not enough for me to say no and move on. So then I think we have to look at the whole masses. And then I think we also have to look at as a kind of society and an ecosystem in abdominal wall reconstruction that who is doing this? What is the training that is required to do this? Who says no? I think if you liken this to say pancreatic surgery, I think that a lot of general surgeons probably don't do complex pancreatic surgery whipples anymore. And they also probably are not going to tell the patient you're unresectable until you send them to surgeon who routinely does whipples. And then they will evaluate and say whether or not things are resectable or not. Same thing for esophageal cancer. So I think for complex hernia surgery, we as a society might have to get to a place where we say, okay, what does it take to be that? And then those surgeons need to be able to service a large group of patients, and we need a lot of them, to be able to take care of patients, to give them the best outcomes and the best procedures. We want to give a thank you to our staff hernia experts, Dr. Petro and Dr. Rosen, for talking with us about this topic. We'll wrap up today's episode with some quick hits. First, we thought active smoking put patients at about 5% higher risk of minor wound complications compared to non-smokers following an open ventral hernia repair. Smoking likely does not increase risk of reoperation or major wound complications. It's important to note that this does not apply in scenarios with hardware or skin or tissue flap. And lastly, surgeons should be tracking their outcomes. This information should be interpreted in the context of your own practice and outcomes. Thank you to our listeners on behalf of the Hernia team here at the Cleveland Clinic. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.